0: Well, good morning everybody, um, I'm Amanda and uh, we're going to talk about making sense of results today. Um, I've discovered that the microphones only work for the cameras, so I'm going to shout because um, there's, n- there's no generalized microphone, so if you can't hear me at a certain point, um, just sort of wave and I'll speak up. The other thing that I tend to do is I tend to speak a little bit fast when I get excited So if I start going too fast, especially for people for whom English isn't your mother tongue, just go and I'll slow down, okay? Um, But you'll need to point it out to me, because I do get carried away. This session is about making sense of results. And um, I've got a little cartoon for you to begin with, and this... uh, teachers there and he says, welcome to the basic astronomy. Before we start, are there any questions? And he says, yes, what makes astronomy different from astrology? He says, lots and lots of maths. (laughs) And he manages to lose the entire uh, audience. Actually, um, people are quite um, numerophobic. How many people here don't like numbers very much or or are scared of numbers in papers? You're, you're a stronger group than most. I've, mostly, I, I sometimes bring calculators along, and I sort of see people's white faces as I... But this, this is a session about statistics. It's, statistics really is not about numbers. It's not about maths. It's about common sense and concepts. And I hope that that's going to uh, come across today. Um, in this session, we're going to do the following. We're going to look at how measures of effect are reported. We're going to look a bit about p values. We're going to look at confidence intervals. We're going to look at what we mean by statistical significance and test for statistical significance. We're going to think about why we need systematic reviews and we're going to look at how to interpret blobograms. Okay, so what's a blobogram? Oh, yeah, we're going to have fun. I'm I hope so and, and you're welcome to interrupt me at any point in time I'm, and I mean it so here's a blobogram also known as a forest plot also known as a meta-analysis graft now look at this blobogram and it is looking at if people who've had a severe head injury how can we reduce their risk of death or long-term morbidity well one idea is that if you cool people right down um, it will reduce the brain damage So this is a blobogram of the results of four trials of cooling people down and uh, looking at how many die or are severely incapacitated. I want you to write down what you think the result of this uh, systematic review showed. This is taken from the Cochrane Library. I'm just going to give you five seconds to write that down. What does this show? Okay, believe it or not, that was five seconds, and quite a few of you didn't write anything down. And I don't know whether that was because this was such a difficult question. You thought, oh, my God, which are just jumping right in with the blobogram and asking us to interpret one. Or whether it was just because it was so obvious you didn't have to write anything down. Well, this session is for the people who thought, oh, my goodness, what's she doing? I, I don't know this. Um, by the end of this session, when you see a graph like that, You'll be able to interpret it immediately. That's, that's the aim. That's how you'll know whether this session was worthwhile, okay? Um, let's go ahead. So, as I say, you're welcome to ask questions. There is no question that you can ask me that's too stupid. I'm serious. This is a safe environment. This is where you can learn the things that you need to know for the future. And nobody's going to... Um, Make a fool of you because you don't know it. This is this is. You can ask the question. You're safe. We're going to look after each other. Okay. But before we start, we're just going to recap. What are the important things you need to think about when you're using research evidence to inform your decisions? Shout it out. Is it relevant anyway? Is it randomised? Is it relevant to your question? Is is it it relevant to your question? Do you? Sorry. Recent. Is it valid? Do we always ask, is it, is it randomised? No. Do we use any evidence that's not randomised? Do we ever want evidence that's not randomised? Yeah, depends on our question. It depends on our question. If we want to know how women felt about a certain procedure, we'd go and ask them. We'd do a qualitative study. So we don't necessarily want it randomised, but... Um, We do if it's an intervention study. So for any study, whether it's a randomised controlled trial, whether it's a systematic review, whether it's a qualitative study, economic evaluation, cohort study, whatever study, we always want to know, is it valid? Somebody said over there. If it is valid, what do the results tell us? And then is it relevant to our decision? So there are three things that you would ask of any study. Um, Validity is, can the results be trusted? Results, well, what are they? You know, how have people express them? Could they be expressed in a different and more meaningful way? What do they actually mean? And then relevance, is this relevant to my particular patient or in the context where I have to make a particular decision? So, just because it's first thing in the morning, I'm just going to give you a little warming up exercise just to, to, to stretch you a bit. All I ge- the validity for an intervention study. What sort of study design do we want for an intervention? A randomized controlled trial. And you have got 30 seconds to write down all the validity questions or discuss with your neighbor what you'd do for a randomized controlled trial. What makes a randomized control trial valid? You've only got 20 seconds left. Okay, you've had 30 seconds. The validity questions. You may not have had time to come up with them all, but perhaps between us we have. What, what questions are you going to ask? Randomization. Was it randomized? Was it an adequate sample size? How they recruited Were they matched both samples? Okay, so did, were the groups comparable with the baseline characteristics similar? So, in other words, was the recruitment and the allocation. Okay. Yes, so, and, and for their allocation to be okay, what do we want? Blind- we want randomization, but we want? Blind- we want allocation concealment, then we want blinding. Anything else we want? The two? Were they maintained the same Sorry? Were they maintained the same Yes, were well, they kept the same way? So were both groups treated equally? Anything else we'd like to see? Adequate numbers, so that was your sample size calculation, and you wanted it analysed properly, so an intention to treat up analysis. So here you are, going from the top, it's all about getting those groups the same. Was it randomised? Was the allocation concealed? Did it work? Did you have similar baseline characteristics? Was it blinded? Treated the groups the same? Minimal losses to follow up, and were they the same in both arms? And did they do an intention to treat analysis? Not bad, you came up with that in 30 seconds. Well, at least as a group we did. The reason I've gone doing about results and I've gone back to validity is because results only have meaning if the study's valid. If you're appraising, you're reading a trial and it's not been done validly, you know, you you can't interpret the results. So I'm going to give you a warning that everything I say now about what results mean is assuming that the study's been done in a valid way. Okay? Most critical appraisal, that where you throw out a paper, it will be long before you get to look at the results. It's because it, it will just not be a robust paper. So everything I say from now onwards assumes the um, study was done validly. So let's, we've got a valid study. Um, most useful studies, cohort studies, case control studies, most useful quantitative studies, compare to alternatives, at least to alternatives. You alternatives. Know, did the person have this treatment or did they have the control? Uh, were they exposed to this um, risk factor or were they not exposed to it? Um, did they get a disease compared to the people who didn't get a disease? So how can the results of such comparisons be expressed? Graphs being... Put them in graphs and what might you just show in the graph? Relative risk. No risk. You might show the relative risk, so you could have a graph where you just show the proportion who got a certain outcome in one arm and the proportion in another in a sort of a bar chart, or you could actually do some kind of calculation and show the relative risk. Some of these words like relative risk might not even be familiar to you, but the concepts are actually common sense, so what we're going to do is we're going to do a little exercise. We're going to look at a randomised control trial. This is one I plucked out of the air. It's just a, a, a nice, easy numbers. And we're looking at whether orthopaedic mattresses are better than normal mattresses for preventing backache. Okay? And we've randomised 100 people to receive a firm orthopaedic mattress and 100 to receive a normal mattress, a medium mattress. And after three months, we measure the backache in the groups. 80% have got rid of their backache in the orthopaedic mattress group and 20 in the medium mattress group. Right, I'm gonna give you just one minute to summarize this result with your neighbour. So talk about all the ways you can summarize that result. and is going to help me. Are you, Azam? Yes, I am. Um, do you want to um, tell us how you summarise those results? Or? I think for the firm matrix, the relative risk is 80%, and for the uh, model, model matrix, the medium matrix, is 20%. So the difference is 60%, although I can say that for firm matrix, four out of five will benefit. So the uh, the medium matrix, one out of five will benefit and will get better. That means the risk risk is uh, four times for medium matrix than third matrix. Maybe I make it too complicated. No, you perfect. I rarely get the full answer on the very first go. Excellent. Okay, so... Exactly what Azam says, uh, 80 out of 100 get better in the firm mattress group, so we say 80% get better. <coughs> Strange enough, although it's getting better, that's what's known as a risk. What's the risk of getting better in the mattress group? Well, it's 80%. It's a funny, funny word for English speakers to use the word risk like that, but that's what we do. What's the risk of getting better, 80%? 20 out of 100, what's the risk of getting better in the uh, medium mattress group? So once you know that we're calling the probability of getting better risk, the relative risk becomes how likely is you to get better in one group compared to the other. You know, the risk relative of one group to another. So the relative risk of getting better is four. You're four times as likely to get better with a firm mattress. So when people talk about relative risk, they're talking about dividing one risk by another. 80 divided by... 20. That's what relative risk means. Asam also did something else. He said if 80% get better in the orthopedic mattress group and only 20% get better in the regular mattress group, an extra 60% are getting better. So instead of dividing one by another, he took 80 and he took 20 away from it. And that's called the risk difference. An extra 60% of people get better with a firm mattress that's the risk difference the only thing he missed was the number needed to treat, this is an interesting concept for every 1.7 people with back pain given a firm instead of medium mattress one case case of uh, back pain is improved, that's known as the number needed to treat, I've got the definition on the next page the number needed to treat is the number of people who would have to be given an intervention, in this case a firm mattress, in order for a, one extra case of back pain to be given. So in this case, if we give um, two people a mattress, a firm mattress, instead of a medium mattress, we'll get a, a cure case of back pain. That's the number needed. How did we get to that number needed to treat? Um, let's just go back. Well, it's very easy. If a hundred people are treated with a battery, an extra 60 get better. Divide 100 by 60 and you get 1.7. So it's how many to get one extra person better? So 100% 100 people, extra 60% get better. 100 divided by 60, 1.7. Actually, I... Yep. do. Ask me a question. I didn't understand the last bit, which is about the 1.7. Okay, I, I can't understand it. Do you understand the concept number needed to treat? No. Okay, so for example, if I give somebody an anaesthetic and they become unconscious, and it happens every time I give somebody an anaesthetic, how many people would I have to give an anaesthetic to to make them unconscious? It happens absolutely every time. they just have to give it to one person and they'd become unconscious, wouldn't they? So, in that, that would be the number needed to treat. Number of people I need to give an anaesthetic to, to make them unconscious is one. Just give it to one person they become unconscious. In this case, not everybody given a firm mattress got better. Only 80 got better out of the 100. So the number needed to treat can't be one. And twenty would have got better anyway. Twenty would because we got in in the regular mattress group, twenty got better anyway. So we look at the risk difference. How many extra people got better? Well sixty percent. Sixty percent extra people got better. Do you get that the risk difference? You took them away from each other. Okay, so if sixty percent of people extra get better, for every hundred people we treat, how many extra people get better? We treat 100 people, how many extra people will get better? 60. 60. So the question is how many people do we have to treat for one extra person to get better? 100 divided by 60. Yeah? That's the number needed to treat. Now, if you're mathematical um, and you like formula, you can think of that as 1 <laughs> over the risk difference. But you don't have to think that one over the absolute risk difference. But formula um, sometimes um, confuse people more than help. Uh, isn't, isn't it easier to say for every five uh, patients, four will get better as compared to one? You can, and that, that is a good but way of saying it. It makes more sense to a lot of patients. Because if you tell patients their risk is 0.3, they think, what do they mean, 0.3? What's a 30% risk? I can't understand that. What do you mean? It's either going to happen or it's not. But if you tell them, well, for every three patients like you, one will get better, they can understand that. So it is, if people, if you're talking to patients, it's much better to keep things in natural frequencies. They understand it a lot better. Okay, but there, there are only two basic ways to summarize risk. You either divide them. Or you take them away. So you either divide things and you get a relative risk, or you take them away and you get a risk difference. And there are other things, ways of expressing risk, like odds ratio. Do you think that's a dividing or a taking away way? There's a clue. There's a clue in the title. Ratio actually means dividing. So it's it's dividing, it's like relative risk, they're dividing hazard ratio. Is that a dividing or a taking away risk? So it's dividing risk. Is there are only two things? And once you know that, life becomes very easy because you don't have to know how the car's working to be able to drive it. You don't have to know the statistics to be able to interpret them. All you need to know is whether someone's giving you a dividing or a taking away risk. So this diagram, the blob of Lobogram has as its basic structure this inverted T. What's the line down the middle on that inverted T when you look at those diagrams? What's that line down the center? Neutral. No effect. One. No, no effect. No. I'm, I'm, I'm saying somebody's saying it's no effect. Somebody's saying it's one. Any other options? Any other? Pardon? No difference between the two groups. You're too clever, Azam. He's just too clever, isn't he? It's actually not necessarily no effect. Um, and um, it's, uh, it's no difference between the two things you're comparing. Obviously, if you're comparing placebo or, or, or do nothing, then it is no effect. But it's, it's the line of no uh, difference between the two things that you're comparing. Somebody said it was one. Is it one? Who thinks it's one, that, the, the number Along the bottom. Who thinks it's one? One person thinks it's one. Two people think it's three, four, five, six. We're getting more. Who thinks it's something else? Okay, we've got quite a few votes for one. And a lot of people not vote. It depends. It often is one. And for it to be one, it's got to be a, divi- it's got to be a dividing risk. So if you've got 12 and you divide it by 12, what do you get? One. So if you're getting the same in one arm and the same in the <coughs> other arm, you'll only get one. If you get 43.9 and you divide it by 43.9, what do you get? One. So the, what happens under that line, it depends on whether you're looking at a relative risk, a risk ratio, an odds ratio, a hazard ratio, or whether you're looking at a risk difference. Regardless of that, to the left is always less, so it's gonna be less than one if it's a ratio, and to the right it's always more. So if it's a dividing, so it's a ratio, then the number there is one. However, what's 43.9 minus 43.9 when you've got zero. Zero. So if it's a if it's if you're showing a risk difference and it's the same in both arms, you're going to get a a zero away so if you take away you get a zero there but it's still less on this side and more on that so it doesn't really matter ok I'm now going to do a randomised controlled trial, I'm interested in backache and I looked on the web for cures and I actually came across this it's a genuine herbal remedy for backache ok potters so I thought well I wonder if it works And being an evidence-based person that I am, I couldn't find any trials on Medline for for potters, so I decided to conduct my own trial. I didn't get funding from the pharmaceutical industry or potters, so it's quite a small trial, but it's superb. There was no bias whatsoever. I had the randomization done centrally by a friend. It's absolutely superb trial. It fits all the criteria for being bias-free. And five people ended up being randomised to get potters. And five people got an absolutely identical and indistinguishable placebo. And four out of five people got better with potters. And two out of five got better with placebo. First of all, I want you to do, before we even go on, I want you to tell me what the relative risk of getting better with potters was and what the risk difference is. Before we even even start thinking about these results Asam awesome, why don't you give the microphone to somebody else who's brave enough to have a go at answering this? No, not brave enough. pass it backwards. No, it's it's going to the cameras. It's going to the cameras. Somebody who's brave enough to answer this and wants to appear on film. No nascent, budding um, film stars up there. Bit scary. Pass it back to Paul Glazier. He must be brave enough to appear on camera. Paul. What did you make the relative risk of getting better to be? Oh, we're not switched on. You were twice as likely to get better with than you were. Did everyone get that? Twice as likely to get better with potters than with... Yeah? And you didn't dare say that on camera. You were so insecure. <laughs> what was the risk difference? Um, two, two extra people out of five got better with potters. That's two, two out of five, which is 40%. Okay, so two out of five, 40% got better out of Potter. So if, we, if 40% extra gets better, how many, if we treated 100 people, how many extra people would get better? 40. So for every 100 people we treat, 40 extra will get better. So what's the number needed to treat? Two point something, yeah, two point, f- somebody good at maths over there. Okay, so this is, you can put it in a two by two table like that if you want, and um, here we have four, this, this is how on these blobograms you get this, here's the study, this is my little study I did, the next line will give you the intervention. The next line gives you the control, and you get a little fraction like that. Now, that little fraction is telling you the first bit. The numerator is how many people got better. and The denominator, the bit underneath, is how many people were in that arm. So here's our study. Four out of five got better in potters, and two out of five got better in placebo. And there we are. It's, Paul gave us the relative risk, so that we know the number at the bottom is 1 and there's our blob above two. That's our point estimate. Unfortunately, I don't think my little laser works, but there you are. Your, there's your blob on your <coughs> blobogram. So that's how a blobogram works. It's giving that um, the point, best guess of how good it is. It's twice, twice as likely to get better with potters. Yeah? So um, I immediately went out and invested in the potters industry, and I now want to sell you all, Potters, are you going to buy this? Do you believe that Potters cures backache? This is an unbiased study. We need to look at the characteristics of uh, the, the baseline characteristics. Did my randomization, randomization work? Were they, were they yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just going to ask all the, all the all your um, participants did they have the same characteristics in relation to back pain. You know, were they muscle? Were they. They had low chronic back pain of no particular cause and, and we did seem to get a um, good randomization only, yes? The numbers aren't significant, there must be a, I mean it, it, so you, need, you have a very small population to really come to the conclusion that the number, that that's a significant difference so it might be very So you're telling me you don't believe it, not because the study's biased but because it could have happened by chance Is that what you're telling me? Okay, <laughs> every time you see a result and somebody comes up, the pharmaceutical rep comes and says, Get, look at this, look at this marvellous thing, you stop and you ask yourself, could this be due to bias? That's the first thing I always ask myself, hey, let me have a look at how that study was done, so that's the first thing, is the study valid? Is there something in the way they conducted the study that would give them the results? The so first thing I ask myself is, is it valid? Is there bias in there? The next thing I, you want to know is, could this have just happened by chance? And only if I can't find bias or chance, do I start thinking, hmm, maybe there's something here. Okay, so we don't believe it It, it could have happened by chance. So we're, we're, we're very sceptical, hmm. So, I decide people aren't going to... You know, I've got all these shares in potters, so I've got to prove that it works. So I do another superb study, <laughs> totally bias-free. And this time, I randomise um, 2,000 people, okay? I've got exactly the same results. Twice as many people are getting better in the potter's arm as are getting better in the placebo arm. Now if this was unbiased and let's say I hadn't bought shares in the company uh, would you believe this result Yes. how many people would still be sceptical right most people would believe this let's hear from the sceptics why aren't you going to believe this result Right, so you're saying you might believe this result, but you can't tell just from these numbers. What about other people? I would have liked some confidence intervals. So. or Okay, so you're, you're saying the same as him. Yeah, that's looking good, but I need to know how much uncertainty is surrounding that. Okay? The, the, the thing that, how do you assess getting better... Ah, Well, it it is a subjective outcome. It is a subjective outcome, but they were blinded. Everyone was blinded, even the assessor. Even the assessor. In fact, it was patient-reported, but the the two tablets were indistinguishable, and we asked them to guess which they were on, and they couldn't. (laughs) So we do think this is a valid trial. Okay. Some people are going to believe this because their intuition is that the uncertainty surrounding that estimate is very low. Some people want a little bit more information. Just going on intuition alone, we're we're going to um, have a bit of fun here just to wake you up. I'm going to ask you how many people you would want, would you guess you'd need in each arm before you're going to believe the result. Okay. And we're going to do this by the secret ballot. So I want you all to tear off a piece of paper, a blank piece of paper. And I want you to write on it how many people you would guess intuitively you would need in each arm before you begin to believe the results. Before you got those results. Yeah, before you believe it. And you do a trial, yeah, and you're getting 80% of getting better with potters. 40% 40% are getting better with placebo. In other words, you've got a relative risk of getting better of two. How many people would you guess? You don't have to be right, because it's a secret ballot. No one's ever going to know what you wrote. Um, write your number on a piece of paper, fold it in half, in half again, and then swap it with someone. Don't let go of your piece of paper till you've got one back from them. Otherwise, somebody will end up with two, and somebody will end up, or more. Keep swapping it until you don't know whose piece of paper you've got. No, any any number you want. What the number you sort of think? Well, about thirty, about three thousand, whatever it is you feel in your belly. Okay. If you have followed the instructions correctly, everyone should have one piece of paper and no more in front of them. Open the piece of paper in front of you. And this is why it's a secret ballot. You're going to report on the piece of paper in front of you, not what you thought. So if it's silly, it's someone else's fault, okay? (laughs) Now, how many people have a number between 0 and 20 on the piece of paper in front of you? One. Okay, I'm, what we're going to do here, if I can get the mouse to work, is we're going to write these down. Pointer options, felt tip pen. We have one for that. How many have got 21 to 40? Two. 41 to 60? 61 to 100? 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 18. 101 to 200. 3 and over 200. The overwhelming majority. So 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, to 11, to 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, Right, very, very roughly... There's some confidence intervals on here. About 33. I don't know if that's right. But some, somewhere along that line. Okay, so most of you wanted over 200. Who's right? How do you decide who's right? How do we decide who's right? What we need to do is to have some way... <coughs> of of knowing, of quantifying the uncertainty that's surrounding our results. Everybody, all of you knew that if only five people in each arm, you could easily, just by chance, four get better in one arm and two get better in the other. All of you knew that intuitively. However, what you don't know intuitively is how many people you need in each arm. there There were at least five people who, even with a thousand in each arm, didn't intuitively feel that they could know that they wanted confidence intervals and stuff like that so how can we know how much fuzziness there is here's a highly fuzzy lots and lots of uncertainty you can hardly even see that there are trees and here's a little less so how can we talk about how much uncertainty how fuzzy is our best estimate that you're twice as likely to get better how can we put a number on that who knows how we do quantify that We, can, we could do a power calculation and, and that would tell us how many we would need in each arm and then when we look at our results it would tell us how much uncertainty in our results. How, much do, how do we express how much uncertainty there is in our results? Confidence, Confidence intervals? One way? P-value. P-value is another way, so uh, we're going to look at p-values first so um, one way of expressing this is a p-value and um, we're just going to look at this you all said to me, hang on, 5 in each arm that could be due to chance so the question is, how often would you get a result like that by chance Mm, with nothing going on If you have that little thought, we epidemiologists give it a name. Does anyone know what name we give to that thought? Hang on, if nothing's going on. It's the null hypothesis. Let's assume that nothing's going on is the null hypothesis. You hypothesize that there's nothing there. Okay, so there's nothing going on. How often would we get a result like that by chance? And what do we give the answer in? We give the answer, how often, what do we express that answer in? The probability, the p-value. So let's just have a look at p-values. p-values are actually quite easy. They're very, very easy. First of all, you've got to know what p stands for, and our friend Olu told us just then, what does p stand for? Probability. And what values can probability take? Zero to one. Zero to one. As I'm just too good. He is just too good. Here we are. So we have zero to one. Okay, I'm going to ask somebody else. What does zero mean? If you've got a probability of zero, what does it mean? It's impossible. So if I have a bag of red sweets, and there's nothing but red sweets in it, and I put my hand in, and I pull out... A sweet. What's the probability that it's blue? <laughs> Zero. Yeah. Okay. What's the probability the sweet I pull out is red? One. One. Fantastic. So that's all you really need to know. Zero is impossible, and one is absolutely certain, and everything else is somewhere between. So if we've got a p-value of 0.5, what does that mean? Yeah. It's, it's, it's in the middle, it's 50 50. So if I toss a coin, what's the probability it will come up heads? Yeah, P0.05. So if I tell you, look, I'm, I've got this coin here, and I can always make it come up on heads. And you say, oh yeah. I said, I can always make it come up on heads when I toss it. Look, it's not biased. Here's the tails. And I toss it and it's heads and you'll say yeah that will happen by chance even if you aren't able to control it so the null hypothesis is let's assume that Amanda can't really control how many times the coin spins how often would she get a result like that by chance for it to come up heads when she said it was going to come up well it will happen 0.5 of the time it'll happen half the time I'll prove you I'm right people have made a fortune out of that They predict the sex of children. They say, Oh, I can predict the sex of your child with my my little quartz thing. Money-back guarantee. You know, half the time they get to keep the money. Okay, so 0.05 means that it's 50-50. It's halfway between absolutely impossible and absolutely certain. What does 0.1 mean? Pardon? 10%. So it's 1 in 10 of the times it's there. What does 0.05 mean? 5% of the time, or 1 in 20. That's a very familiar number, P equals 0.05, isn't it? You've heard that one a lot. Why have we heard that one a lot? Because that's what we tend to use when people say it's statistically significant, isn't it? <laughs> when P is less than 0.05. So statistical significance is nothing special. It's nothing magical. When you get a result that's statistically significant, all it means at p less than 0.05, all it means is that if nothing is going on, the null hypothesis, you wouldn't get a result like the one you've seen, or bigger, more than 1 in 20 of the time. It doesn't mean that there's anything real there. So we... Call things statistically significant when the result is unlikely to have occurred um, more often than one in twenty of the time. So there's nothing, nothing special, and we tend to use p less than 0.05. This is—I like this little cartoon. <laughs> the reason I like this cartoon is because actually. You do not have to know how a statistician has done the test um, for statistical significance. All you need to know is how to interpret a p-value. So if, if they do, oh, we test for statistical significance, p equals 0.01, what does it mean? 0.01? It means it's statistically significant. What does it actually mean? Yeah, so if there was nothing going on, one in a uh, hundred, one percent of the time, you would get a result like this by chance. Ninety nine times you wouldn't get a result this extreme by chance. That's all it means. Okay, so let's just have a look at this. This is the one we looked at before with potters and placebo. We say. We as a a community start believing things when P is less than 0.05. So if we'd wanted to do a a power calculation to find our sample size, we would have been happy with 15 in each arm. If you were getting as big an effect as a number needed to treat a two with 80% getting better in the orthopedic mattress group, you would only needed 15 in each arm and we'd start believing it. So, a P equals 0.05 isn't a very strong test. If we go back to uh, the slide before, which I believe is this one, um, only one person was right. Um, And most of you were way down, wanting way much more evidence than we accept to change our practice and treat people. Scary, isn't it? Well, I find it quite scary. I don't know. So, um, that's interesting if you put a P value on it. Any questions? How did you arrive at those p values? Um, you don't need to know that. <laughs> 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 I tell you something. I, How I, I, I I don't know it either. I put it into a computer program that cleverer people than me have done, and it will tell me what the p value is. If it, you know, I've got a little two by two table on and I can share it with you all later, an Excel spreadsheet, and it just tells me at the end. It gives me p-values, it gives me confidence. And so you don't need to know how the engine works to be able to make sensible use of the results. And that's the point. But it's after you got the results you've calculated the speed values. Before I start a study, how do I know how many I need to enrol in the first Again, it's a nice little bits of software. If you go into Google and put sample size calculation software, it will yes. give you. Uh, it will give you pe- people like Raphael who are clever. Where's Raphael who know you know who think and swim in Greek letters and things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they do it, and then ordinary people like you or me. All we have to do know to be able to make sense of results. You don't have to be statisticians. Statistics is all about concepts. If you understand that the null hypothesis... I, for years, got A's in my exams, putting H0. I had no clue what H0 meant, or what the null hypothesis is. All it means is that you're playing a mental game, saying, well, let's assume that nothing's going on. Nobody told me that. I mean, I could still get A in the exam. It's weird. Um, anyway, let's go back to where we were, which I think ought to be that, what slide it is. Okay, so you can see that it, uh, with 1,000 in each arm we could easily believe that result provided it was an unbiased study because with only a 100 it would only happen 1 in 10,000 of the time. Okay, so why P less than 0.05? Your gut feeling didn't want you to go for 0.05 so why do we go for that? Okay, just going to wake you up again get you all active. They say if people sit for more than 10 minutes they need to do something. So it must be about ten minutes since we did the secret ballot so get a coin out and toss it six times in a row and count the number of heads that came up yeah oh yeah please I shall do it too oh no 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 I've got it so that one will count as a tail Two heads, what did you get? I must be one I've got five heads in one head. time. Got, you got five heads? I don't know Okay. Um, how many people got one head when they did it? One, two. So we got another two people who got one head. How many people got three heads? So, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. How many people... Oops, I've got 18 on here. 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Well, it goes right up the top and further. How many people got four? 19, so that goes off the top, very similar to the... To the three. How many people got um, six? My goodness. Two. How many people got five? One, two, three, four. Um, Plus the one we got here before. So let's, here we've got another four on top of the one we got before. We got two with six. How many got one? How many got none? Okay. So The probability of getting six heads in a row and it happened to us twice... ...is less than 0.016 if they didn't have an unbiased coin. But it happened. Because we have enough people throwing the coins for it to happen. Why do we accept 0.05? It's just a convention. I think it's probably rather a a, um, a, a too lower barrier myself. But I do have a double-headed coin... And I play, I play with groups like this. I've stopped doing it because I always drop them on the floor. But they start asking to see the coin. After it's come <laughs> up, it heads in a row four or five times. I.e., when about P equals 0.05. They stop trusting me. And by the time it's six, everybody in the room thinks I've got a double-headed coin. Nobody believes that I can actually control it that much. Okay. So we're going to apply... We're going to start... Just, we've learned a P value... It's saying, if nothing's going on, how often would you get a result like this for chance? Now, I've been teaching people about statistics for quite a few years, and I used to evaluate people's subjective understanding of certain terms (coughs) before and after workshops to see how effective I I was being or how effective participants thought I was being. And I'd give them words like odds ratio or risk ratio, and they would score it. So five would be... I understand the term and could I explain it to somebody else? I understand the term but couldn't define it. Uh, Three, I have a vague idea what it knows, what it means. You know, don't ask me any more questions. Uh, Two, I've heard of it but I've never understood it. I haven't a clue. And one was I've never heard of the term. Okay? So five was better. And with odds ratio, this is before the workshop over here and this is after the workshops over there. Before the workshop... Um, 70% of people um, didn't really know what it means Um, certainly 60% hadn't a clue what it meant even if they'd heard of it before 40% hadn't even heard of it before after the workshop somehow (laughs) 2% still hadn't ever heard of the term before. (laughs) but um, a staggering 80% thought they understood it And a staggering 40% thought they could actually define it and explain it to somebody else, right? So these lines coming down like this is a good sign. So my question to you is, is this a statistically significant result? So I'm asking you, has this happened by chance, or is this a real result of the workshop? Now, I'm going to get you to vote, and by now we're friends enough for you to be able to stick your hands in the air, okay? Okay. Who thinks this is statistically significant? Hands up. Who thinks it's not statistically significant? Thank you, Carl. Two, two of you. And uh, and who's sitting on the fence? Oh, Crilly, Mike, well done. Well done, that man. Okay. This was a highly statistically significant result. P less, you know, one in 10,000 or less, When people voted, um, you should have voted don't know, because I didn't tell you how many people that was done on, did I? And it could have been like my Potter trial. We can infer that, though. But but Paul inferred it, which is clever of him. So so the don't knows and the people who voted yes were right. And Carl, you were unique in being wrong. It was statistically significant. (laughs) Okay, however, people are nice. People are nice. And, you know, it doesn't mean that I was teaching very well. It just means that they were pretending, you know, it was self-assessed understanding. So I'm not nice. So I decided to trick them. And in the evaluation forms, I also put a, a term that I never, ever covered, MARG, to see if they were just being nice. They'd say they'd heard of it and were better at it. And lo and behold, the lines come down they they know this term more at the end of the workshop than at the beginning okay a lot less a lot less but do you think this is a statistically significant result we get to vote again who thinks yes this is a statistically significant result hands up it's the same class it's the same 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 class hands up for statistically significant two hands up for not statistically significant Hands up for sitting on the fence, most of you. You can't sit on the fence this time because it's the same class. You, you say, I've got the don't know has being deleted here. You, you cannot sit on the fence now because this is the same class. You're only allowed yes or no. It's highly statistically significant. This was not a chance occurrence. This was a real effect. These are a couple of thousand people I'd taught. This is an utterly true effect. The clinical significance, the level of their understanding was negligible, but this was a true effect. So, whether it was a social compliance effect, people being nice, but it was not a chance effect, or whether it's because they said, Did you see that really weird word in the, what did that mean? And they actually do know it at the end of the workshop, but it's not a chance effect. And this is very important because authors and editors love p-values like that don't they? they love p-values like that but they can belong to things as meaningless as this hmm bit of a problem (coughs) any real difference between things however tiny it is will become statistically significant if you take a large enough sample size and I had just taught lots and lots and lots and lots of people So a very small p-value doesn't mean you've got a marvellous treatment, necessarily. All it means is the effect that's being reported is unlikely to have occurred by chance. If there was nothing going on, there's something going on. Whether it's bias, there's something going on. Hmm. It's a very important message. The fact that something's statistically significant or even highly statistically significant does not mean it's clinically relevant. It can be due to bias like this lady. She weighs herself like this, her weight's down it's, mm, there's a bias in the measurement system, I think, a little bit. <laughs> or it can be just you 've got to have a huge sample size so for example, let's say you 've got um, children who are um, not going to be very tall they're obviously got small stature, parents are small but they want to be taller right? and you give them a penny to put in each shoe, you are definitely going to make them taller a trivial amount, you're going to make them significantly, statistically significantly taller but you're not going to make them clinically significantly taller, it's going to alter their lives because they're walking around with a penny in each shoe (laughs) so you've got to distinguish clinical significance from statistical significance, so the p-value tells us something But it doesn't actually allow us to see enough. It would be nice to see a little bit further than the p-value allows us to see. Wouldn't it? Something about, you know, it just tells us that it's not a chance occurrence. It doesn't tell us whether it's an important effect. So is there a better way of expressing um, uncertainty due to chance that gives us more information? Confidence interval. The confidence interval. Yes. Excellent, the confidence interval. So, we're now going to do introduction to confidence intervals. And learning from Raphael yesterday, I've decided that I need to give you sweeties. (laughs) So, I have at home a great big barrel of sweets. And they're, they're kind of chocolate eclairs. And they've got green wrappers or they've got gold wrappers on them okay and I was told there were 50 of you here so this morning I put my hand in the bag and I drew out 50 sweets without looking the question is how many of the sweets were green I, I don't know I don't know how many sweets are green in this bag if someone had to guess you had to guess let's say there was a olives gonna give a hundred pounds to the person who guesses right how many green sweets would you guess in the bag Mike's guessing 25. Right, let's um, see if we can get this to... Right, so Mike's guessing 25 here. Somebody guessed 30. Any other guesses? Zero. Somebody's guessing that there are none. Yep. Whoops. Somebody's guessing there's none. Pardon? 23. <laughs> 33. 20. 23 okay what's the least number there could be we've had zero what's the most 50 50. okay so actually i can't really see this very well but uh the truth could lie anywhere along this line from 0 to to 50 couldn't it the truth could be anywhere between 0 and 50 if we were all cunning and you guessed 0 1 2 3 we could get the 100 pounds off olive (laughs) by <laughs> getting your and share it out afterwards you get two quid each <laughs> because the truth we know the truth we're 100% confident that the truth lies somewhere between 0 and 50 so it's, if you like that's a 100%, 100% confidence interval where we know the truth lies okay Azam you have been very very good today so I'm going to let you have a sweet But before you eat it, you have to show us what colour it is. It's a gold one. Okay. So the question is, how many green sweets did I put in the bag? What 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 are our hundred percent confidence intervals now? At least forty-nine. Okay. I can't have put fifty in the bag, can I? Because we know at least one is um, gold. So now. Our 100 percent confidence intervals lie somewhere between 49 and naught. <coughs> I want five of you to take a suite and then um, I'll take a suite each and then pass the bag on. Okay, so five, you take the last suite, and okay now, let's have a look what we've got here. Do you want to hold them up? Okay, we've got three, four goals and one green. So now where do our uh, 100% confidence intervals lie? One to... One to 45. Right, there are 50 sweets in this bag, so we'd better start playing this game quickly. Keep passing the bag. <laughs> you can take out more than... Um, ten just keep passing the bank taking on so, so everyone who 's got a sweet so far then the next round raise your hands okay so we've this time we 've got four green and two gold so we 've got two gold four green so we know uh, another four of these well, I hope i 'm doing this right two gold okay what's right next lot of people raise your hands and we have uh, Two green and four gold. Okay, next lot of people, raise your hands. We've got three, four gold and one green. I hope I'm doing this accurately. Next lot of people, hold, you, hold up your hands. Ooh, can't see because of the light. One green and three gold. Pass the bag down to the front for the people who didn't get any. If we, I would take them off. do they want to compromise hundred pounds. <laughs> so pass it down that way. Any more people have got it? Haven't held up the hand yet? No. Okay, next lot. To hold up your hands. Right, one green, three gold. This I usually do this in workshops where there's 20 people, but I didn't think you'd be happy if you didn't get a sweet. So I'm <laughs> doing. <with> <laughs> next lot of people, hold up your hands. So we've got uh, three green, three gold. Next lot of people, two of each. Keep going. Next lot, hold up your hands. So we've got two, one. Next lot. Next slot. Next slot. <laughs> it's empty. There were, were, in fact, 18 green sweets in that bag. Okay? So there were 18. Nobody guessed 18. You're off the hook, Olive. <laughs> okay, so there were 18. What do you notice about these lines? They're getting shorter and shorter. So we're, we're 100% confident we're getting more and more confident the uncertainty is getting less and less and less. Why is the uncertainty getting less and less and less? Because we've got information, haven't we? Every time we take a sweet out of the bag it gives us information. And the more sweets we take out of the bag the more information there is, the less uncertainty there is. Okay? Okay. So the width of that is a measure of how much uncertainty. And as we get more and more certainty till we know the truth, which was 18, what else do we notice about those lines? Because they're 100% confidence intervals. The truth, all of them contain the truth. Because we knew they would. We were 100% certain the truth lay between them. So if you draw a line down from 18, it, it intersects every line. Every line contained the truth. Confidence intervals are just like this; they're measures of how much uncertainty there is. Okay, but because there's always the future, things might happen again, or we might. We can never be 100% certain. We've only got a sample. This time, we were able to take every sweet out of the bag. We were able to look at the entire universe of sweets that bag. But actually, in the real world, we can only ever take a sample. So, what we settle for at confidence intervals, where we're how certain that the truth lies? What do we usually say? We usually go for 95% certain the truth lies between those arms. So 5% of the time we'll allow ourselves to be wrong, which is the same as P equals 0.05, if you notice. 5% of the time we'll be wrong. So if we were to put the um, uncertainty um, around our our potter's test when we only had five in each arm, the uncertainty went all the way from 0.63, and it could have gone right up to six and a bit times better. So here's another thing about these graphs. You get your best estimate as the blob, and then you get your uncertainty in terms of confidence intervals. And this graphical information is usually shown at the side. So it tells you where the blob is too, and it tells you the bottom end and the top end of your confidence intervals. And it tells you whether you're being 95% certain the truth lies, or 80% certain where the truth lies, or 100% certain, well, you never have 100%, but 99%. So we're getting to be able to interpret these um, lines. And uh, arrow white, well, arrow. That's simply because I didn't gra- draw the graph. It means it goes on to 6. I shouldn't really have done it, but I could have uh, done the graph a bit better, but I, I was in a hurry. Here, here this one actually fits on the graph which goes up to 5 so um, we don't have to have the arrow on it. So this is a bigger sample size this is when we had 10 in each arm and notice because we've got more information because we've got more sweets out of the bag as it were we have a bigger sample our uncertainty is much shorter. So this time our uncertainty only goes from 0.88 to 4.54. You can think of the bottom end and the top end of the confidence intervals as a best case worst case scenario we think potter's is twice as good is this potter's yes potter's is twice as good as placebo but actually it could be doing harm at 0.88 or it could be as much as 4.5 times as good so, that, so it tells us more than a p-value it tells us you know, what kind of effect we're talking about so on this one what, what's happening on this one You remember, we said if we got um, 15 in each arm, we now knew, we now had a statistically significant result. Why was it statistically significant? Because Because we wouldn't have got a result like that by chance, more than one in 20 of the time. And if you look at this, these confidence intervals, there's a little tiny little gap there. You can read it off here. It's bigger, it's not crossing this line Of no difference between the two um, Treatments So now even in the worst case scenario We think it, Potters is probably better than placebo So If a 95% confidence interval Exactly sits On that line What's your p-value If you're 0.05, 0.5 And if it doesn't cross that line of no no treatment difference, you know your p-value is what? You know it's less than 0.05, because that's where you're 95% certain the truth is. And 95% of the time, it's bigger than the the null effect. Okay, so here, here we've got the confidence intervals. So this is, this is how your blobogram looks It will give you all these studies down the side It will usually start to say Carpenton 2007 Glaze U 1992 and that sort of thing All down the side it will give you the names of the studies it will tell you How many were in a study How many got the outcome of interest In the treatment arm How many in the um, placebo arm Or control arm And then you get your totals Okay. What's this little diamond here? We've been having blobs with, with, with uncertainty surrounding the best estimate. Okay. Meta analysis. What's that? Something special. <laughs> yeah? Okay. Meta analysis is. A nice posh term. It sounds really good, doesn't it? Meta-analysis. It really sounds posh to me. But all it means is putting all the results we've got together, getting a summary for all the results. So if we had all these, these, um, we have these five trials. We add them all up, and we say, well, they were all like little um, parts of the same trial, this big trial. So we add up all these. There were 150 in total. You add up all those, it'll come to 60. Add up all these, it'll come to 150. That'll come to 120. And then this, this bit here, the pointy bits here, top and bottom, are your best estimate. So that's your 2. And it's equivalent to your blobs. And these are your confidence intervals. Right? So that's how that diamond's interpreted. But it's when you add all the studies together. Yep. Yes, In meta-analysis, when we do that it has to be all studies um, they have to be the same, I mean the type of the study. The size of the studies does not have to be the same. In fact we have very different size studies here and in fact that's where meta-analysis is useful because if you've got lots of little studies none of which are statistically significant, all of which have the uncertainty including a harmful effect, you put them all together, well maybe it will become statistically significant, maybe it's you know, you don't get five studies all on the same side by chance. But, but there's another question. Do all the studies have to be the same? Um, they have to be the same about the same thing. There's no point having a study that's looking at uh, warfarin and time to anticoagulation and heparin. I don't know if the users aren't medics. Warfarin takes a long time to work. Heparin works immediately. So you can't put them together in the same So for example if you say um, how long does a study is looking at how long bones take to repair and you have children and old people well maybe you can't really add that up together maybe it's different in children from what it is in old people. So yes and and if you look at the validity questions when you get these checklists for systematic review one of the questions um, saying in those things it says if the results of the study were combined was it reasonable to do so. And it's just saying, were the studies similar enough, looking at a similar population, a similar enough intervention, similar enough outcomes to be able to be put together sensibly? No, I said type. I mean, is it randomised with case control? It has to be the same type of study. Ah, same type type? of study. Well, not necessarily. But you could argue it's it's a judgement call, not necessarily. But if you have randomised control trials, you'd be unlikely... Want to add in a lesser quality study, you'd be more likely to believe the randomized controlled trials. But if if they're both, you know, moving in the same direction and they're both giving similar estimates, then that's quite powerful evidence. Any questions about confidence intervals or the blobogram? Okay. Yeah, it's just the size of the square how do you decide the size of the square excuse me the size of the square tells you how much information is in a particular trial um, and it's, it's if you like it's exactly a correlate with the arm so the narrower the arms the bigger the square They're both telling you the same information and the reason the blob gets bigger is people saying, hang on, the least informative studies are the ones with the biggest uncertainty surrounding them with these great big long arms. That's giving the wrong visual impression. They're the ones that you're noticing and the really important studies with the little narrow arms, you hardly spot them. We've got to correct this, but otherwise people are going to get a misleading impression. They corrected it by making the blobs bigger. So the blob is how much information is in there. I think I better stop now. I've gone on 10 minutes more than I should have. (laughs) Yeah? No question. Now you can now all interpret a blobogram. I believe the next thing was a blobogram. I think I had a blobogram to go back to the one that we had right at the beginning, which I think was slide three. Um, Now you can see that you can start interpreting these things very, very quickly. You now know there's. Are there any significant studies there on their own? Yes. Maria might have been. You can't really tell from this graph. It <coughs> might be borderline significance. It's got <coughs> a missing information down there. When you bung them all together, yeah. They are statistically significant. When you do, sorry, bung them all together is the epidemiological technical term for meta <laughs> analysis. Okay. Uh, but when you do the meta analysis, you notice that the the long arms of the diamond are crossing the treatment effect. Paul, I'm going to go on for two minutes because I can't resist. I'm just going to say, does this mean the treatment works or it doesn't work? Does hypothermia work or not work? We don't know right, so, so before it was saying favours placebo, favours plotters over here, wasn't it? And now it's not telling you. So does it always favour the treatment on one side or the other? Okay, if you remember, this side is always less and this side is always more. Okay, and to work out which side... Favors it you've got to think of the outcome. If it's something you don't want, like mortality and incapacity, you want less of it. If it's something you do want, like proportion giving up, smoking, then you want it on the other side. So which side it sits on depends on whether the outcome is something you want or you don't want. If it's something you don't want when well you want less of it. If it's something you do want, lives saved, number of people cured, and it's on the other side. And that's true whether it's a risk difference or a relative risk it's easy isn't it and we haven't done any equations we haven't done any calculations which is lucky because I don't know how to do them (laughs) Okay. well that's it I'm going to have fun, Sorry, sorry I've eaten into your small group time